Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new season of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Arne Jørgensen. And I am Dolly Jørgensen, and I am not with Finn Arne in Norway today. I'm in Poznan, Poland. And to make the international uh, setting complete, we have with us all the way from Australia, uh, Jared Hoare, who's today's presenter. Um, so he's a postdoctoral fellow with the New Earth Histories Research Program at University of New South, South Wales. Uh, and he will talk about his new book, Visions of Nature, How Landscape Photography Shaped Settler Colonialism, uh, a book that came out with University of California Press this year. So we're just going to jump straight into it and give it over to you, Jared. Okay, how's that? Great. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you uh, from the lands of the Camaragal people um, on the north shore of Sydney Harbour. Most days I also work on the lands of the Bedigal people across the harbour on the sand hills between Coogee and Kamei Botany Bay. Um, it's important to know for me that these people were the first to confront the environmental and social revolutions of settler colonialism on this continent. And yet the Camaragal and the Bedigal never ceded sovereignty, making the land I live and work on roughly theirs. So I pay my respects to Camaragal and Bedigal elders past and present. I acknowledge here their role in nurturing country and resisting settler colonialism and extend my respects to any First Nations people uh, here today um, who might be listening or might be tuning in later. Um, firstly, thank you very much, Dolly and Finana, for the invitation to be part of this Environmental Humanities Book Talk series. Um, I think that the, that the greenhouse at Stavanger is kind of a guiding light for environmental humanities and environmental history scholars around the world. And it's a great honour to uh, talk about visions of nature in a series that includes so many illustrious uh, thinkers and writers. Today, I'm going to start my uh, brief remarks uh, with two short quotes, uh, both appeals from Indigenous peoples to the powers of settler states. The first is from the Yosemite Indian Petition, a to the United States Congress, written circa 1891. And the second is from the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart, with visions of which Visions of Nature opens with. From the Yosemite Petition. We are compelled to daily and hourly witness the further and continual encroachments of a few white men in this, our valley. The gradual destruction of its trees, the occupancy of every foot of its territory by bands of grazing horses and cattle, the decimation of the fish in the river, the destruction of every means of support for ourselves and our families by the rapacious acts of the whites, in the building of their hotels and operating of their stage lines, which must shortly result in the total exclusion of the remaining remnants of our tribes from this, our beloved valley, which has been ours from beyond our faintest traditions and which we still claim. From the Uluru Statement from the Heart, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent lands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion. The ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. 
This link is the basis of this ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the crown. How could it be otherwise? That peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years. My suggestion in Visions of Nature is that one answer to the latter question lies in the 1891 petition that these sacred links, which still endure, have been obscured or effaced by the enviro-material changes following settler colonial expansion and by the technologies of documentation that settler states came to rely on from this period. I also suggest that a unique way of examining this problem is to approach it through the lens of the camera, the technology that became so important in publicising and promoting the environmental changes wrought by settler colonists. Settler colonial photographers created a new way of seeing landscapes and investing in places by embracing the complementary environmental dimensions, improvement and preservation of the settler project. One way or another, each of the six photographers that this book revolves around were highly invested in both these aspects of the settler project. Carlton Watkins, who settled in California in 1849, produced the photographs that informed Congress when they decided to preserve the Yosemite Valley. But he also consistently worked for mining companies, railroads and settlement initiatives. Edward Moybridge, his colleague, arrived in San Francisco in 1852 and spent his career making incredible photographs of natural settings, but also serving the railroad magnate Leland Stanford. Daniel Mundy, who moved to New Zealand in 1864, spent a large portion of his two decades as a photographer, promoting both the agricultural possibilities and environmental advantages of the colony of New Zealand in England. Alfred Burton, perhaps New Zealand's most influential colonial photographer, was highly invested in scenic tourism from the 1860s to the 1890s, but he also had interest in mining and gold dredging in Otago. Nicholas Clare, across the Tasman Sea, Settled in Australia in the Australian colonies in the 1860s, he made his name on the gold fields of Victoria, selling images of both beautiful landscapes and developing townships. John Beattie, the so-called prince of landscape photographers in Australia, was no different, pioneering scenic highland photography in Tasmania and relying on the markets of urban and wealthy settlers that established themselves in the southern Australian colonies after the gold rushes of the 1850s. The work of these six photographers alone made tens of thousands of pictures in the late 19th century. They provide a useful example of this. Almost at the height of his career in 1885, Burton accompanied a survey party into an area of New Zealand called the King Country. The King Country was at this stage controlled by a group of Maori tribes called the Kingitanga. But it also covered the striking mountain scenery of Tongariro pictured here on this slide. On his trip there in 1885, Burton devised what was possibly the defining feature of late 19th century settler landscape photography, the visual partition. In other words, Burton developed a way of picturing native peoples and natural environments that kept them separate. Despite the fact that he was chaperoned by Indigenous guides, fascinated by the Kingatunga settlements that he visited, and deeply engaged with the politics of Maori sovereignty in this area. 
His landscape images stand apart from the photographic treatments he gives these other subjects on the other side of this visual partition, the divided nature and native in settler colonial photography. I argue that this partition deployed independently by other photographers across the American West and the Tasman world enabled settlers to perform a trick of the imagination, to envision the places that they were occupying or claiming as empty and to put them to work to encourage further settlement or eventually bolster the nation. Progressively from Burton's revelatory trip in the mid-1880s, Tongariro became New Zealand's first national park, officially handed over to the British Crown by Chief Horonuku Teu Teu Fukino of the Natai Tupari Toa in 1887. So what contributions am I attempting to make to the environmental humanities by examining this visual partition and staking out this history of late 19th century settler visions of nature? The first contribution that I would like this book to make, and this goes back to the very beginning of this project in 2014, is to bring the environmental humanities and settler colonial studies into closer conversation. Traditionally, I think that environmental histories have actually been quite good at acknowledging when settler colonialism is at play. And I think we can probably discern a discrete tradition of environmental histories of settler colonialism. But I wanted to be much more explicit with my engagement with settler colonial theorists, such as Patrick Wolfe and Lorenzo Veracini, and historians of settler colonialism, such as Tracy Bannerman Omar and Lisa Ford. Essentially, I think what this comes down to is providing a detailed account of settler colonial dispossession as, above all, an enviro-spatial project. So, in Visions of Nature, I'm interested in reading environments and images of environments for evidence of the shifting power relations between settlers and Indigenous peoples. And I think that this can make a wider contribution too than just within settler colonial studies or environmental history. Recent books that kind of pivot on the late 19th century rush for land in the American West and the Tasman world include James Belich's Replenishing the Earth and John Weaver's The Great Land Rush. These, for, these works treat settler colonialism primarily as an economic or a political economic phenomenon. And I think Visions of Nature contributes here by showing that economic or political legal shifts had a stark environmental dimension, sustained by both new cultural investments and the appropriation, imaginative and physical, of Indigenous land. Photographs were, in this light, a manifestation of what the writer Paul Carter noticed about settler surveyors and their writing. Both surveyors' reports and photographs played a role in characterising as a country, as a place where the imagination might be enticed to settle. A good example of this is J.W. Lint's 1894 photograph of the Hermitage, the home and guest house he established in the Yarra Ranges just outside Melbourne. Lint worked with Nicholas Kerr throughout the early 20th century to promote this area as an ideal position in which to rest and recuperate. And I'm quoting here from a guidebook to the area that they published in 1904, drawing on a strain of settler romanticism that had been fostered and cultivated by landscape photographers since the 1880s. Places like the Yarra Ranges and the Gippsland, which Kerr returned to and photographed again and again from the 1870s, frequently, understandably, included Aboriginal reservations as well, 
which were, as they were in Burton's work, partitioned from the natural environments in both image and text. In Visions of Nature, I argue that we can observe this partition in the medium as a whole of settler landscape photography, but also at the level of photographic albums and collections and within individual photographs themselves. Over the course of this work, I think I've probably analysed or inspected over 1,500 photographs, about 50 of which make it into the book as illustrations. I've spent quite a lot of time handling photographs in archives and even more looking at them on screens. And in fact, the, the ready digitization of photographic archives is probably one of the developments that made this book feasible in the first place. Um, and in the next little part of my remarks, I want to reflect um, on photographs as materials and as sources. And this relates somewhat to another contribution that I think the book can make, which is to remind historians of the different ways that we can use photographs as sources and not just as illustrations. So the glass plate photographs that many of these late 19th century settler photographers specialise in making are incredible objects. And in this age of instant digital photography, it's worth appreciating the technical difficulty of their making. On your screen at the moment, we have Carlton Watkins's 1870 image, Whitney Glacier, Mount Shasta. Each time Watkins made an image like this, he had to smooth, polish and clean a book-sized glass plate. He had to coat it with a solution of iodide and cellulose nitrate, immerse it in a bath of silver nitrate in a makeshift darkroom, slip it into a light safe wooden box and fix it to the back of a human torso sized camera for exposure. After exposing the image for anywhere up to an hour, Watkins had to take the plate back into the darkroom, immerse it in acid to develop the image, rinse it with water and wash it finally with another emulsion to fix the image. On Shasta, where this image was taken, Watkins did this at a higher altitude than any other photographer had done, so in the United States, but at this stage. And in a bright, cold and windy environment that posed unique risks at every stage to the photographic process. Now, I mentioned this not to glorify Watkins' work, but to accentuate just how different element, how many different elements were involved in the creation of these photographs. And this is just the start. Back at the gallery, photographs had to be reproduced in, in equally complicated processes that often included retouching. Um, and these were often mastered by the women who worked in the studio, such as Watkins' wife, Frances Sneed, or Edward Moybridge's wife, Flora Stone. The other reason to mention all this is to show how intentional the content and framing of this kind of photography was. One of the uh, most common responses that I often get about this work when I present or write for non-academic audiences or even talk to some academic audiences is but early photography often omitted people because of the technical constraints of the medium. How could you argue that this visual partition was at play if people were omitted as a technical matter? But this was not so. Settlers are included in ostensibly landscape images right throughout this period as there's a figure right in the middle of this image often astride ridges or peering over cliffs. And of course, if you consider the composition of albums, Indigenous people appeared in different settings altogether. If it was important to them, photographers found a way, which indicates that this vision of nature is actually defined by absence, not emptiness. And it was a critical part of their work and of the work of settler landscape photography throughout the late 19th century. 
So in this way, visions of nature turned Indigenous homelands into settler territory. On different imperial peripheries, open space became a settler asset through a long process of reimagining. The key period was from the 1860s to the turn of the 20th century, when settlers created this impression of nature apart from Indigenous resistance. And these transformations and many more like them go some way, I think, to answering the questions of the Uluru Statement. The delegates at Uluru asked how it could be that peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in nearly the last 200 years. Part of the answer lies in the creation of a way of seeing landscapes and investing in places. Long-standing Indigenous sovereignties were obscured as photographers in the Tasman world and the American West became mediators of the environmental dimensions of the settler project. Fixing an orientation to the physical world and its new settler colonial history onto glass negatives, lantern slides, and paper cards. Um, and with that, I'll conclude my remarks for now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jared. This is uh, really fascinating uh, to hear about. Uh, I mean, interesting for me too, because I'm starting up uh, a new project on environmental rephotography uh, later this fall. So thinking about the connection between environment, landscape and photography is, is very useful. Uh, I have a couple of questions and of course, hopefully also the, the audience has some, uh, but one thing I wanted to start with was thinking a bit about these photographs as media um, that were used and shared also at the time they were taken. So could you say something about that? Not just the, the photographs as in a way documentation of this this change, this way of working with landscape, but also as cultural objects that had an effect in their time. So were there, I mean, how were they spread? Who watched them? Do we know much about which effects that had and so on? Mm -hmm. um, I will say three things about that. First of all, um, Great to know that you're starting a project on, you know, visuality and um, um, and photography and environmental history. Um, I look forward to kind of hearing more about that, um, you know, possibly another time. Um, on the case of sharing. So um, one way in which these photographs were shared that kind of, um, I suppose, it, um, it was a little bit of a surprise to me to find how much they were shared in kind of scientific circles. So Watkins's image, um, Watkins's images, um, Watkins took a lot of images also of trees and botanical subjects in California and the American West, um, particularly early in his career. Um, and um, a lot of those made their way back through Clarence King, who was the person that um, employed him on this particular survey um, to Shasta, um, where, you know, pushed back to across the United States to places like Harvard and Yale um, where Louis Agassiz is working, um, where um, other botanists um, and um, paleobotanists and paleontologists are working. Um, and I suppose what they're becoming in that case is um, a little bit of like a, a kind of catalogue of Western um, species uh, and plants. Um, and so I was quite interested to, to learn about that use of photography 
as a kind of like shorthand, a way that um, you know people could avoid having to spend long periods on field work. They could consult these very detailed photographs um, of plants, their ecologies, their kind of um, you know the landscapes and geographies in which they're in. Um, so that is kind of one way um, that they circulated. Um, that's similar also in New Zealand. Um, Daniel Mundy writes a kind of catalogue of one of the uh, North Island's sites of kind of volcanic activity, Lake Rotomahana, um, with um, a German scientist um, who's in New Zealand and um, running the New Zealand Museum at the time. Um, so there are kind of similar ways in which um, scientists are taking up these photographs and doing the kind of circulation um, that um, you know you might expect from like commercial dealers as well. So I suppose those are kind of complementary processes. Um, a second indication of how kind of widely these photographs were shared are in simply the accession records of a lot of the institutions that hold these photographs. So um, you know, in good news for me, and having to reproduce a lot of these photographs for the book. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to find duplicates of certain photographs in institutions that wouldn't charge me um, extortionate um, reproduction fees. Um, and so it's actually quite interesting to look at, you know, when certain um, photographs were, you know, became part of photographic collections at the time. Um, so, you know, particularly Watkins and Moybridge, um, also J.W. Lint, Care and Beattie, um, you know, these images um, are understood as kind of high art also at the time. Um, and so they're kind of making their way into museum collections kind of as they're being photographed too. The third way, and probably the way that I kind of chart um, how, you know, how these photographs um, kind of move around the world in the clearest way in the book, um, is I have a chapter that I write about international exhibitions in the late 19th century. And particularly the settler take up of international exhibitions as kind of a medium through which they can kind of assert their own kind of you know uh, colonial development and control over territory um so you know one of the best examples in the united states is the philadelphia centennial exhibition which is where the image that i kind of begun this you know my slides today with the image of the the houseworth um, image of the image of pictures of yosemite on the wall that's from the Philadelphia Centennial. Um, that exhibition in particular is documented quite well. And so we know that there's quite a few images of Australia that make their way to Philadelphia, including um, you know, Bernard Holterman's uh, Panorama of Sydney, which wins a prize at that show and is quite celebrated um, as you know, one of the largest photographic panoramas um, in the world at that time. Um, but you know, it's 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 quite actually easy to to show where some of these photographs moved to as well. Carlton Watkins exhibited in Sydney kind of earlier than the Philadelphia Centennial. Watkins famously had on his um, you know stereograph cards when he won medals in certain exhibitions. Um, so you know, um, photography was kind of born at the same moment as these international exhibitions, and so. There is this kind of dual development of photography as an art form and these exhibitions as a way of kind of, you know, um, sharing information, sharing um, objects between uh, empires, colonies, nations um, in this period. And so I do a fair bit of work in um, that particular chapter showing how photographs kind of moved around the world via these exhibitionary um, infrastructures and pathways as well.
That's so interesting um, to think about because, uh, yeah, the, the way images become so central to things like an exhibition, um, because you're right, they're, they're growing up at the same time. So, and I really haven't thought about that connection. But I wanted to ask you about the indigenous people then um, and their representation or lack of representation in particular kind of images by these photographers. Because what's, what's curious is how um, indigenous people, if I think if I think in the 1800s, the view of them was as they were closer to nature, right? So so a lot of times when people wrote about them, they wrote about them as being close to nature. And yet what you're saying is in these photographs, they're divided from that nature. And so I assume instead then, if I think about um, some Swedish photographers who are at the same kind of time, they tend to be close up on groups, right? So it's, it's mm. about kind of them in families or them doing primitive uh, stuff but but it's but it's all about people so an anthropological study if you will and then there's this landscape but so I was I was curious how it is yeah do they talk about that do they talk about the indigenous people belonging to this landscape or being like nature and then somehow not showing them or mm. you know do they push that discourse away in terms of these photographers it is a really interesting kind of split. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the way that, um, reminded of the way that archaeologists in this same kind of period in Australia talk about uh, uh, Aboriginal people in Tasmania, in particular, and this is Ruby Taylor's work, um, talk about Aboriginal people in Australia as primitive but not ancient, right? That they are an index of primitivity, but they are not kind of, you know, they don't occupy the land for um, this kind of, you know, vast period of time. But it's quite clear, I think, um, you know, in Tasmania that like there are these people are finding and are kind of intimately aware of the depth of Indigenous occupation in that place. Indigenous people are telling them they're finding objects in the strata that are obviously old. Um, and yet there is this, you know, this kind of um, this contradictory split. Um, you know, maybe the same thing is happening um, with these photographers. Um I'm conscious that, um, you know, their markets um, for this kind of work are probably more general than the, like, philosophers who are talking about Indigenous people and the state of nature um, because it is, it, it, you know, they're not right in their guidebooks, for example, or in their descriptions within the photographic albums. They're not necessarily talking about how close Indigenous people are with nature. Actually, you know, a lot of it is that really... Um, that really kind of like um, nostalgic um, kind of um, anthropological tone of like dying races, disappearing peoples, um, documenting like the last remnants. Um, that's the kind of um, that's the kind of primary framing, I think. Um, and so, you know, there may be some recognition that um, indigenous people were closer to nature in the past, um, but as they are talking about about them in the present, in this kind of ethnographic moment in which they are documenting Indigenous cultures. Um, it is very much in that kind of um, anthropological tone of, you know, documenting a, a disappearing culture. Um, you know, in Australia, it's like it's all of those, you know, awful quotes like the smoothing, smoothing the pillow, the, a dying race and, and those kind of things. That's the type of language that is used um, by the photographers when they're writing about um, the imagery. 
Um, and you're right that the, the and I didn't I wasn't able really to show one here because I really wanted to um, focus on the landscape aspect of it. But the images of Indigenous people that these people show are off, very often tightly framed ethnographic kind of portraits. Um, there are some exceptions to that. Um, you know, Moybridge takes some interesting photos in the Tool Lake lava beds in Northern California, um, which is kind of like during an active conflict um, with the Modoc people. Um, he's there to kind of document that for the press. Um, you know, that, that's also kind of infused with this kind of regretful um, anthropological framing um, of like the kind of last stand of the um, Indians of Northern California. But he also does kind of, you know, Rebecca Solnit in her great book about Moybridge argues that he, you know, takes pictures of the landscape to kind of, you know, stand in for Indigenous people. And there, there is an interesting kind of thing going on there too about the, that substitution, the landscape Indigenous substitution. Um, and Watkins, of course, takes photographs of um, young Indigenous people um, in the Yosemite Valley. Um, but uh, in that sense, I'd kind of think of that more as, you know, a kind of romantic, kind of bucolic, Arcadian framing. And so maybe that is one of the, the few instances that I came across of um, the framing of Indigenous people in nature in that kind of Rousseauian romantic tone. Um, yeah. Thanks for that question. All right, so we have a question from Ellen. I'll unmute you. Hi, thanks, Jared. This is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I was struck by your comment about all of the different materials that went into the production of photographic plates and prints and I was curious if you had any sense of, and, and then combined with the scale of the number of photographs you looked at, any sense of the logistics and the, the supply chains that these men would have had to have been part of to not only take and develop all these photos, but then also ship them around to international exhibitions, et cetera. Mm, mm. Thanks, Helen. Um... I confess that this is something I kind of got interested in late <laughs> in the book. Um, and so, you know, in my uh, my research into it, I actually, you know, it's because I, the, the, the backstory of, you know, this interest is that I've done some work on um, natural history specimens and the, um, the movement of natural history specimens um, around the world in the late 19th century too. Um, and that was very much through like a kind of logistical framing um, of kind of like, you know, getting the, also the chemicals to preserve the natural history specimens, but also to kind of ship them to kind of different museums around the world as kind of networks of trade. Anyway, um, but when I was doing that work, I was like, oh, how interesting, you know, I know that these photographers were, you know, quite serious consumers of chemicals. Um, and, um they there's no doubt i think you know that they would have had to have been kind of in involved in some quite um lengthy supply chains um but i'm afraid i can only really speculate because in the records um when i was doing the project i didn't actually come across a lot you'd come across the odd recipe um you know for certain parts of the um for certain parts of the process that i described before and you'd come across little bits about how 
photographers would sometimes have to substitute, you know, one particular chemical compound for another um, because of, say, a shortage or something like that. Um, but but nothing, you know, that I could really sink my teeth into. I think if I was to go looking for it more explicitly and and maybe kind of focusing on one one photographer, for example, um, I could maybe um, learn a little bit more about the supply chains. Um, I'm reminded that in, um, you know, Tyler Green's excellent biography of Carlton Watkins um, that came out just before this book with UCP, you know, he talks about this process too, but you know, he he also can't find any, you know, particular, or not that comes across in the book anyway, that's like 700 pages. Um, he also can't find any kind of, you know, um, serious um, indication of what these supply chains are. Um, my best guess is that because all of these men were so deeply involved with the mining industry, um, it's probably like I, my guess would be that that is where or the primary logistical chains that they are kind of tapping into to access these chemical compounds. Um, I might be totally wrong about that, um, but I think that would be kind of my best guess. Um, and in terms of kind of them putting these objects into circulation around the world, I spoke before, it's about, you know, um, kind of tapping into existing scientific um, infrastructures to kind of move these photographs around. And so there's a kind of latent demand there that I think they, that many of these photographers used. Um, certainly in the Australian colonial case, um, getting these images into global or international exhibitions was no problem because they were often in, they were often connected to the priority to encourage settlement in the Australian colonies. So throughout this period, there were agent generals, um, I think as the colonial um, administrative figure, whose responsibility it was continually to kind of organise exhibits at these international exhibitions. And so we, it really would have been a quite simple process to kind of exhibit in, say, Sydney in an intercolonial thing, you know, do well in that particular exhibition um, and have then, you know, those... Um, images kind of taken up, you know, on behalf of the colonial government and sent to Paris or London or Philadelphia or whatever it is to promote settlement. Certainly that's what, um, that's how Bernard Holden's, you know, humongous panorama of Sydney Harbour gets to Philadelphia. It's, you know, um, like it is taken as part of the purpose to promote Sydney as a location for settlement. Um, and that's how it gets there. Um, and that's why it has this um, important impact in Philadelphia. I'm not sure actually, like realistically, how many uh, immigrants came to Sydney after that exhibition. Um, but certainly it's a kind of celebrated um, element of it. Well, you mentioned there, um, Jared, about mining and the mining interests. Mm. And so um, I was thinking here about the kind of landscapes that these guys and of course they're all men I guess uh, these photographers um, choose to photograph that become these kind of iconic pictures and you know are they going out there because they're on commissions from mining companies um, or they're associated with mining companies so they're always taking pictures of places that have mining goods uh, you know that, that are where there's going to be put a mine so they tend to be a particular kind of landscape a particular kind of mountainscape for example um and how does that affect what the images that they're putting forward of what this what these places are because you only see that kind of ecosystem if you will 
Mm, mm. Yeah, that um, that geology. <laughs> um, you know, it's like um, look, mining's the dominant. Um, mining's the dominant kind of uh, mine. Gold mining is the dominant kind of um, the dominant project. I think for a lot of these photographers, Watkins kind of famously, you know, his first commission is at Las Mariposas for to create a mining a gold mining prospectus. Um, for um, that site in the Sierra Nevada. It's kind of close to the Yosemite Valley. Um, he ends up in the Yosemite Valley, um, you know, with survey with a, with a survey group. Um, but, I mean, the Yosemite Valley is so um, spectacularly beautiful. Um, you know, it is kind of, I suppose, proximate to um, certain mining regions. Um, it is actually kind of interesting to think about the um, the uh, how those geologies have shaped photographies, right? And so, in one of the chapters, I kind of talk a little bit about um, geobiography, which is you know a little bit of cute wordplay, but um, I kind of find it you know interesting sometimes. But in that, I'm trying to think um, through exactly that question, right? How do the the geographies or the geologies um, end up shaping you, right? Where these people focus. Um, it's similar in um, Tasmania, which is another kind of like post-glacial um, landscape like uh, like the Yosemite Valley is, that also has kind of not gold mining in this case, but copper mining quite close. Um, and, you know, there are parts of Victoria too that, um, you know, that are um, quite scenically beautiful, um, but also quite close to um, gold mining areas. Um, there's an argument there, I think, that um, this kind of heavy development of um, sites of mining, I think, you know, we call them now with our kind of Anthropocene language, sacrifice zones. Um, you know, I see Mike is here. We've talked about um, sacrifice zones before. So, you know, there is an argument here that these sacrifice zones create a kind of, you know, moral necessity in settlers to... Uh, preserve or, um, you know, cast apart these other sites, um, you know, and maybe in that sense, photographers are actually a really useful, um, really useful and focused way into thinking about that broader moral economy of um, settler colonialism, which is so heavily invested in the transformation and the destruction of natures, um, you know, and then they feel this, possibly they feel this necessity to, um, you know, to turn to, uh, so-called empty, so-called untouched nature, um, you know, and the photographers are, you know, they are probably as invested in this process as anyone else is in these settler colonies at this time. So we have a question from Gerard uh, here in the chat uh, about the power of uh, these types of photographs over earlier depictions of nature, whether it's drawings or paintings, uh, whatever. So uh, could you discuss those different media in relation to each other? So do people think of these, these photographs then as more real or definite forms of evidence than they had encountered before? And, and what are the implications then for these colonial or industrial narratives about the natural world uh, at the time? Yeah, um, great question. Thank you. Um, 
this is kind of two parts that I'd want to address. Like I spoke earlier about, um, I, I suppose a few times already today, um, about scientists and the way that the scientists, um, you know, were drawn to photography. Um, and that was quite, like, quite quick, really. Um, so scientists understood quite quickly that this was an incredibly powerful form of documentation um, and began collecting glass plate photography quite quickly. Um, so there is definitely a kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, a truth kind of um, attachment there, the photography. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, Roland Barthes has written about it. Um, you know, many historians of photograph photography have, have written about, um, you know, the truth claims or relative truth claims um, of, you know, photography as a media. Anyway. Um, but that brings in, I think, the question of other media, which I, I think from my perspective as a historian uh, might be more interesting. So I suppose the ones that um, I talk about one of these at length in the book, I don't talk as much about the other. I will start with the one that I do. Um, so I talk a lot about romantic painting in particular, which is, you know, it's probably the key medium through which the kind of landscapes that photographers get interested in in the late 19th century gets represented in before photography. Um, you know, in America, I'm thinking um, of the Hudson River School and of Albert Bierstadt um, kind of moving west across the continent and creating these, you know, um, highly accentuated romantic imagery of um, natural environments. Um, and in Australia, I'm thinking of people like um, William Pigrenet, of Eugene von Gerard, you know, those kind of figures who are active at the same time in Australia, doing essentially the same kind of thing um, with remote environments. Now, Beerstadt is um, quite close with Watkins. I think Beerstadt and Watkins are in the valley at one at the same time at, um, at one stage. Um, Watkins takes a photograph of Beerstadt kind of at work in the valley, which I, I think is a really interesting kind of, <laughs> I suppose, sliding doors moment, um, in, you know, in my argument anyway, because my argument is that in this period, um, you know, large scale wet plate photography because of its high definition um, and because of um, the scale that Watkins kind of creates in his photographs. I spoke earlier too about um you know, the way that they're understood as high art at the time. And this is part of the reason why I think this type of photography inherits a lot of the power of romantic painting um, from about the 1880s onwards. And this is a, you know, um, the kind of decline of romantic painting in Australia. Um, I think there's a, you can kind of observe a similar kind of thing at play, um, you know, in America as well. Um, you know, Tim Bonnie Hades written at length about this in Australia. There's this major decline in romantic painting at the end of the 19th century before a new kind of genre of painting emerges. I argue, um, borrowing a little bit from him um, and kind of using some of um, what I know about how important landscape photography or how widely shared it was at exhibitions during this period, I argue that landscape photography kind of inherits it, takes up that framing, takes up that power, um, and um, you know, essentially replaces it for a period of time. Um, you know, one, another piece of evidence, I suppose, of that is that, you know, the other kind of major and probably more widely shared um, media of kind of representation at this stage is lithographs. Um, and so um, I do know that 
there are many, like a lot of these photographs make their way into lithography. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes the photographers themselves will be involved in creating lithograph prints of certain photographs. Um, but many times, you know, you'll, um, I've found many, many lithographs um, in kind of published accounts that, are, you know, almost kind of mashups of different um, photographs. Um, that I know from, you know, my, you know, time in the archives with these landscape photographers. Um, and so, you know, I know less about lithography and the cultures of lithography um, or, you know, possibly landscape lithography during this period. I know that they kind of adopt the pictorial frame of photography quite clearly. Um, but, I, you know, the, the movement from romantic painting to landscape photography and into kind of lithographs and that form of, um, sharing because of course lithographs were much easier to represent in um, newspapers and um, the colonial press in that sense too so um, I think that's kind of how you see the the movement throughout the 19th century um, you know in terms of um, media. So we have an interesting follow-up question from Greg um, asking not just about uh, you know photographs or lithographs as representations, but also radically different types of representations are being presented and to the public and to government officials uh, at the same time, like taxidermy displays, indigenous artifacts, mm. art, uh, and so on. So could you compare then photographs to to this type uh, of representation? Uh, both what kind of things they depict, but also what the impact uh, is and so on. Mm. I think um, certainly like the, um, you know, I'd, I'd suggest that the truth claims of, you know, high quality um, landscape photography are kind of, you know, paramount in this instance. Like it's no mistake that um, it's not drawings of the Yosemite Valley that Lincoln has on his desk and that, are distributed to, I mean, the drawings are also distributed to, to Congress, but, you know, famously it's um, Watkins's photographs that uh, Lincoln has on his desk, um, you know, before kind of signing the, signing the act to kind of first, you know, preserve the Yosemite Valley, you know, and I think that's a, you know, that's an important kind of moment um, to hold on to. But um, on the other hand, I think the place where this is, you know, where that kind of, I suppose it's a, it's a dioramic purview um, a dioramic kind of vision is most clear again in these international exhibitions. So you know, in international exhibitions, you have, yeah, you have taxidermy, you have specimens of minerals, of rocks, um, you have kind of dioramas. Um, there are kind of, um, you know, on the flip side of uh, the minerals, there are colonial prod products and produce, um, you know, usually th those kind of things are, much, um, you know, there's a, an accentuation of the primary resources in these colonial in these colonial exhibits, um, but also, you know, there are sometimes also like what those things are made out of. Whenever there's a smelter or a, um, you know, a, a new coal um, new coal mine um, set up, the the products of that are also tend to be shown. So I think walking into each of these exhibits. Um, you know, these exhibitions. And there are actually, you know, as Dolly said before, um, because these two, you know, these two media, the uh, kind of diorama of the exhibit and the, the camera kind of develop in unison. It's like the um, photographers are taking photographs of the exhibits as well. And so I think we can observe, you know, also the way that kind of photographs fit into this kind of universe of representation and of 
um, I suppose, metaphor really at these uh, um, exhibitions. So Annalena's uh, returning to this question of gender and masculinity, since it's all the absurd yeah. of guys. Uh, and then she brings in how these photographs uh, remind her of the stories of Jack London, when he talked about nature as something to be conquered, controlled, uh, penetrated, and so on. So this is, in a way, a way of talking about nature that has been read as, you know, through this construction of white masculinity. Uh, so do you see something similar then in, in your case? You know, what, what role does masculinity play in both in the reading and in the construction of the, the photographs? Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's a, it's a really important question. And, you know, like I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I probably don't, um, you know, deal as, um, you know, deal as well with this question as I probably could have in this book. Um, you know, uh, because there are kind of certain elements of it that are, you know, really interesting from a masculinity point of view as well. Like, um, you know, environmental historians of Africa and of hunting in Africa have pointed out that, um, you know, that the the camera, you know, just as photographs take over from romantic painting, the camera takes over from the, you know, the rifle um, in Africa, like that there is this, you know, uh, continuation of the same ethic of kind of hunting in Africa that kind of goes into the camera. It's capturing you know, it's taking, um, you know, and I think, you know, many Indigenous people um, across the world have also kind of reacted to ethnographic photography in the same way and that it's a, it's a capturing um, of something of them. Um, and look, you know, these men use that language, um, you know, I don't want to say consciously, but they're definitely using that language, you know, um, one of my journal articles is called Capturing Terra Incognita because that's the, you know, one of the phrases that Burton uses to describe his trip into the King Country in 1885 is that it's a, a terra incognita to be revealed via the photo, for, via the camera, um, to be captured by the camera. Um, and so I think, you know, I wanted to be really clear about those territorial imperatives in this book. But... Um, the bit, or maybe that's this is an and but, yeah, and but. Um, the thing that, um, you know, that maybe complicates this a little bit is the role. And again, this is something a bit like the uh, materiality logistics kind of question um, raised earlier. This is something that I kind of, you know, looked more into toward the end of the project. The role of women in, you know, these studios, you know, is, um, you know, certainly understudied by me included. Um, you know, we can't underestimate the importance of someone like of, of a woman working as a retoucher in a studio um, to this whole enterprise of the representation of nature. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly how, um, you know, widespread that practice is, but of all these photographers, you know, it's like there are a couple of retouchers, there are a couple of people working, a couple of women who are working as retouchers, there are a couple of women working in the studio, um, wives frequently take on the accounting and the business aspects of these um, enterprises when they get to a certain size that um, the income is kind of enough to um, sustain multiple people working. Um, you know, Nicholas Kerr's wife, um, you know, uh, Louisa Mundy, um, they kind of both work at orchestrating and planning some of the trips. We've got to remember too that like a lot of these photographers are spending huge periods of time out essentially out in the field taking photographs 
Um, and so the question, you know, <laughs> the question that is obvious, right, or and maybe the answer to the question that is obvious too, is that it's, you know, the women running the business uh, back in Melbourne or back in Dunedin or back in um, Hobart. Um, and so, you know, like there's the there's the there's the obvious masculine kind of tone of the territorial capturing, um, but there is probably a more complicated history here um, about masculinity and femininity, about labour, um, and about the different kind of components of this photographic enterprise, um, you know, and the way that they're gendered. Yeah. So we have time for one last question then, and I wanted to ask them about the the connections between these guys, because, um, you know, you are writing about, you know, limited time period then, and these people are all active in more or less the same time then. So do they know each other? In what ways? What are these connections between them? Do they learn from each other? Um, do they compete? Uh, and, and how then do these relations I mean, influence this this colonial thinking uh, that you are getting at in the book. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking this question. I'm kind of glad that it's the last one, actually, because it's a really good place to finish. Um, I think anyway. But um, so the reason I started this project is because I suspected, you know, um, influenced by uh, transnational scholarship and this kind of transnational turn in scholarship that took place in the kind of early 2000s and when I was kind of training in grad school. Um, that, you know, that I was, I was influenced by that. And I thought, why wouldn't all of these photographers know each other? Surely there is a transnational story here um, of interchange across the Pacific, drawing on Ian Tyrrell's great work. You know, this, this, is, this is taking place just before or during a moment of kind of progressive reform in the United States and um, Australia too. This is Marilyn Lake, um, you know, where there is a, quite a degree of interchange as well. Um, so I assumed that there would be, and then never really found much, um, you know, which is its own interesting kind of thing to say, right? Is that, you know, these photographers who all took photographs in similar ways, you know, there wasn't really an interchange. Like there wasn't a, you know, um, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a story of transnationalism. This is a story of comparative settler colonialism, Um of course, though, you know, like Moybridge and Watkins both working in San Francisco, and this has been like kind of long, um, you know, I suppose long hypothesized within studies of Watkins and Moybridge. It's like, did they know each other? Of course they must have. We don't really know. Um, we, it's hard to say. Um, they were obviously competitors. Um, they worked with different publishing houses. They had their own kind of competitive relationship. We don't know. Watkins's archive was mostly destroyed in the um, San Francisco earthquake. Moybridge was this kind of like, you know, chaotic kind of person that didn't actually leave much. Um, yeah, at this part of his career, there are tens of thousands of photographs of like animals climbing upstairs and stuff. Um, you know, but there isn't necessarily a lot of kind of trans-Pacific exchange except for the images themselves. So, you know, any one of these photographers that went to any number of these exhibitions definitely would have known Carlton Watkins winner of silver medal in Paris in, you know, 1860, can't remember exactly, but I, they definitely would have known, you know, Moybridge ex exhibits here, um, has this imagery. These people were quite learned, though didn't necessarily, I think, um, you know, wear that clearly um, and certainly didn't kind of reflect about it to any great degree. There probably is an element of what the audiences were looking for. You know, audiences are looking for the, the soul, the sole photographer 
um, you know, kind of going out into the wilderness, taking photographs and delivering it to them for consumption. That's part of the kind of romance of these people. And so any kind of degree of collaboration or interconnection, you know, probably ne wasn't necessarily the best uh, commercial idea for these people. But they must have known each other, I think. Um, they definitely the ones that are in the same site and they definitely must have known of each other's work um, purely by virtue of consistently exhibiting at these international exhibitions and that being such an important part of sharing and moving their work. And so what I land on is this kind of, you know, um, as I said, comparative study of um, settler colonialism, but also maybe a kind of, you know, I, I try and think about it as a kind of unknowing transnational exchange. Like there is some kind of exchange going on here, but it's an exchange in, you know, images um, and in aesthetics, not necessarily in kind of like, you know, techniques or in um, strategies or in um, practices. Well, thanks so much, um, Jared Hoare, for coming and talking to us today about visions of nature, how landscape photography shaped the settler colonialism, uh, which is out with the University of California Press in 2022. It was a great way to kick off our uh, new season of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Thank you for having me so much. It was um, terrific to have a chat with you and, you know, can't wait for more of these talks over the next couple of months. <laughs>